if, if you have kids yourself or if you've got nieces, nephews, or friends with kids, what you notice is that uh, kids are allowed to do things that adults are not allowed to do. <laughs> if, if we did them, then we, you would think that we were crazy, right? Um, so I remember one story as I was thinking about this. Uh, my little brother, he's uh, eight years younger than I am, so he was probably four, and I was uh, about 12, I think. Um, and we were getting into this elevator, and then this big guy walked in. I don't remember exactly what he looked like, but he was a big, I don't know, big tall guy, tattoos, kind of like a Harley Davidson looking dude, kind of a tough guy. And my little brother just kind of stares at him, looks him up and down and goes, huh, big tough guy, huh? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm, I don't know. I'm not with this guy. I don't know who he is. You can deal with him, you know. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of, you know, if, if I would have said that, that guy would have pummeled me, you know. If it's a little kid, it's okay. Or um, if you think about, I was thinking about this too. I always think it's funny when parents, they have a, a new baby. Usually it's only the first one. The second one, nobody cares. I'm a second child, so nobody cares about the second child. But the, the first one, what happens is, you know, they, the baby rolls over, and that's, oh my goodness, they, they text, they show video, and it's like, what if we did that? You know, what if I showed you a video of myself rolling over? Like, that's a big accomplishment. Or just one more, and this is funny, um, if, uh, you know, a lot of times when parents are potty training their kids, they give them an M&M or something like that, right? So what if you saw my wife carrying around a bag of M&Ms, you know, and then saw her like, pat me on the back, you would, you know, you would think I need counseling, and, and all of that is because, and I might need counseling anyway, but you would definitely think it if you saw that, but the, all of that is this, the, there's supposed to be growth, right? You're a little kid, some things are okay, and if you're two, and then three, and then four, and then, there's supposed to be growth. There isn't, we're not supposed to just stay in the same place, and this is true both physically and spiritually. One of the metaphors that the Bible uses for becoming a Christian is being born again. And that idea has many different um, connotations around it, but one of those is that we begin life as with Jesus as an infant, and then we're supposed to grow. We're not, there's not just supposed to be a stagnation, uh, a staleness. There's supposed to be growth that takes place, this organic uh, I start as a baby, and then at the end of my life, as I've been walking with Jesus, there's, there's growth. And sometimes when we talk about growth in the church or um, in Christian circles, we can be like little kids that don't want to grow. You ever try to take a pacifier away from a kid and say, hey, it's time, you're, you're 17 now, the pacifier's got to go. And they, they start to get resistant, no more blanky, no more, you know, these things, they start... We can be like that sometimes. We don't want to grow. We fight against growth, and yet all of it is, is for our good. It's for our joy. We don't want kids to have pacifiers and blankies when they're 21 because that they probably wouldn't get a job or a wife or a husband. I mean, it probably, so it's for their joy, right? And that's the big idea that we're going to talk about tonight that Paul is going to help us see in this, this next section is that as Christians, we're called to growth. We're called to growth. We're called to grow. And this is, I think, an important topic for, for anybody and wh whoever you are here tonight. If you're not a Christian, I think this is a great thing to look at in the Bible because Christian growth is different from just normal kind of self-help growth. It's different. Everybody knows, hey, we should grow and we should mature and don't stay the same. Most people understand that idea. But Christian growth is different. And so if you're not a Christian, I think you might see some things that are different about 
Christian growth, it might be helpful for you to even understand how the gospel, how Jesus, how Christianity all works. Or maybe you're a new Christian. I know some of you uh, recently have become Christians in the past two to three years, or maybe even more recently. And sometimes what happens is we start our walk with Jesus, and it's exciting, and it's great, and everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, oh, this is difficult. I feel like I'm not growing anymore. I feel like I'm stuck. How, what do I do? How, how do I keep going? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long, long time. Maybe you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember. And it can sometimes feel in that state, man, I don't really think I need to grow. I've arrived. I'm, I'm there. I mean, you might not even think of growth because it's just, it's not even on your mind. It's just, yeah, I'm, I've been a Christian for my whole life and, and I'm good to go. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time and you feel stuck. You know that you should grow, but you don't really know how. You've been a Christian, you've been in church, you've read the Bible, you don't really know how to grow. So no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity or any of that, I think that this topic of growth is, is really important, it's really helpful, and Paul's going to help us understand some of the things that keep us from growing, some of the common things that keep us from growing, and how it is that we actually grow. Okay, so this is what we're going to look at. I'm going to be drinking water because I feel like I'm in a sauna, but in jeans, which I like saunas, but not while preaching. Um, okay, so here, here's where we're going to start. Here's what Paul says. He says this, and this is the foundation. I think this is really a really encouraging foundation to begin with when we talk about growth, okay? Here's what he says. This is Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 12. And he says this, not that I have already obtained this, and I'll tell you what that is in a second, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers. I do not consider that I have made it my own. Okay, so here's what Paul says. This, 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 not that I've already obtained this is what we talked about last week. So last week, I'll give you a refresher, or if you weren't here, here's, here's what we talked about. Paul talked about that his worth and his value, the word that he uses for that, his righteousness, his confidence, is in what Jesus did, not what he's done. And Paul says that all the other things in his life, he considers them as crap. He uses the word rubbish, but it, the literal translation is dung, scubula. He says everything else in his life he counts as crap compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And then he says that he would be able to continue to grow in relationship with Jesus, that he would experience the power of his resurrection coming into his life. So, so this, this is all of that. It's this perfect fellowship with God. It's this perfect relationship with God. It's finding your absolute worth and value and identity in Christ. And Paul says that's what he does, but he also says, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not already perfect. I do not consider that I've completely made this my own yet. And here's why I think this is an encouraging place to stand, to start when we talk about growth. Paul wrote the Bible, or at least a big chunk of it, right? And a lot of times we think, man, these Christian leaders, the guys that wrote the Bible, man, they, they, were, they were perfect. You look at paintings even, and how, you can easily identify who St. Paul or St. Peter were. They've looks like they swallowed glow sticks and their head is 
glowing and kryptonites coming out of them, right? You can easily tell who they are because there's this holy aura around them. Paul says, I'm not perfect. I'm, I, haven't, I haven't arrived yet. This is the guy who wrote the Bible. So to me, that's encouraging because I look at my life all the time and say, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I know the things I'm supposed to do. I know, man, I want Jesus to be the absolute core center of who I am. And yeah, I'm moving in that direction, but not there yet. And neither was Paul. So that's encouraging, I think. As we talk about growth, everything we talk about, hear Paul saying, I'm not perfect. I haven't already obtained this yet. I think it's encouraging, too, if you're not a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, you might know some Christians. And your um, thoughts about maybe even some of the things that keep you from considering Christianity deeply or um, some of the things that are hindrances to you, whether it's on a broad scale or more of a specific scale, is Christians are just hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Now, here's the truth. There's some people that say they're Christians that are not Christians. And the Bible talks about that all the time. But there are people that are Christians that are hypocrites because Paul's saying, you know what? I was a hypocrite. I knew what was right, and sometimes I didn't do it. I knew that I was supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I can't say I'm perfect yet. I can't say I'm absolutely there yet. And sometimes people can say, man, you know, why would I become a Christian when even the Christians I know don't live up to what they say they believe? And again, sometimes maybe it's because they're not a Christian at all, but it's also because Paul lays out for us that Christianity, walking with Jesus, is this growing process. It's not, there we go, I've arrived. It's this growth process, even for the best among us, even for Paul. If you would have met Paul when he first became a Christian and then met him towards the end of his life, which this was, you would see, yeah, there's been growth, but... Yeah, he's not there yet. He doesn't, he doesn't look exactly like Jesus looks like. So I think that's encouraging for, for several reasons. I think it can also be encouraging if you're a Christian and you look at your life and kind of get frustrated by, what's, man, am I ever going to change? Yeah, you will, but it, it's going to take time. How long is it going to take? Forever. Just that long. Just forever. Just set your watch for forever, and when that gets there, you'll, you'll be... You'll have arrived. So that's the, that's the starting point. That's the foundation that Paul says. That we're going to talk about growth, and Paul's going to help us understand three different things that we should consider when we consider growth. We should consider our past, our present, and our future. And we'll unpack all those and just kind of go through section by section. But this is the starting point. Paul says, I have not arrived. Okay? So hopefully that's encouraging for some of us. I know it is for me. Now here's where, here's where Paul goes next. He says that we need to look at and consider our past. We need to look at what it is that Jesus has done. That change, and I'll just kind of, that growth takes place, and I'll just give you the, kind of the full sentence here. Growth takes place from the past, in the present, for the future, okay? And we'll, we'll look at all that, but, so here's what he says. The next thing Paul tells us is this. I press on, so this is the same section that we already looked at, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul is saying, I press on to experience this greater relationship with Jesus, 
where he's at the center of everything, where my worth, my value, my identity, the power of his resurrection is completely saturated in my life, where I know him, I love him, I enjoy him, I press on to make it my own, that's what growth is, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, now this is very different than every other religious system of thinking, even within churches that that teach the gospel wrongly. Here's what Paul says. He says that I work, and we talked about this maybe a month ago or so, some of these similar ideas. Paul says, I work from something, not for something. This is very different, okay? That everything else is future-oriented. All other religious ways of thinking are future-oriented, and Christianity is past-oriented. Something definitive, something historical happened. Jesus did something. This is past tense. He made me his own. Something happened, and because that happened, now I live from that. Versus saying, there's something out there, I want to be good, and I'll reach being good. Being good enough to get to heaven, or good enough to get to God, or if, I'm, if I can just reach that, then... God will make me his own. See, we might not always say it that way, but, but the opposite is usually how religion works. It's, I will make God my own, and then if I do that well enough, he'll make me his own. Paul says, nope, actually, something happened in the past. Jesus made me his own, and because of that, I press on to make him my own. That's a very different way of thinking, and it changes everything. It's a very different way of thinking to say that something in the past took place. So now I've got a power, a motivation, a why behind growing. Jesus did something, and so now I can press on to grow, to make him my own. And what he says here is profound. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, has made me his own. Think about that. He's made me his own. That that means, and I said this, that that he went first. That means he went after us and said, you're mine. That's a very personal way of talking. You know, most kind of religious things are built on systems of principles. Follow these things, do these things. But what he says here is it's this very personal thing. Jesus made me his own. That's a very intimate way of thinking about how we relate to God. He made me his own. See, one of the ways the Bible talks about this is in the language of adoption. If you think about adoption, what happens in adoption? It's, um, it's not that there's these really awesome, valuable Um, lovely, amazing children. It's not the rich and famous with their their precious babies that are on some website, bestbabies.com or something, that people are picking out. Usually what happens is people go into hard situations, dark situations, and adopt. Make that child their own. It's, it's not this, look at this amazing, glowing, wonderful baby from the outside. 
I'm not saying anything about you know, the preciousness of a child. I'm talking about kind of circumstantial factors. It's usually people going in somewhere to an orphan. Some, someone didn't want them. Someone gave them up. Someone left them on a step. Someone couldn't handle them, whatever the reason is. And adoption is someone saying, I take you and make you mine. And then out of that, things change. This is what God did to us. God went into the darkness and got us, the Bible says. See, Jesus Christ made us his own, and Paul talks about this throughout the letter, through the cross. What the Bible teaches is that we are far from God, but that God came down to us in Jesus and said, I'm going to live the life that you should live. I'm going to die the death that you should die and take that all on myself. And I'm going to give you life with me. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you my own. I don't know if any of you are adopted, but, but what I know is that if you were adopted or if you, if you know people that have adopted someone out of a hard circumstance, when that child grows up, if their parents tell them about all of that, that child will feel a sense of, wow, that's awesome. I've got a friend that's adopting right now and they're spending lots and lots and lots of money making sacrifices. They're going into places in, uh, in other countries where the conditions aren't great and they're adopting this child. When that girl grows up, the parents will be able to tell them, we adopted you because we chose to. It wasn't that you were just this amazing person. We chose in love to adopt you and bring you and make you our own. That's what God did to us. And maybe that doesn't really connect with you. Maybe some of the relational side of it doesn't connect with you as much. So let me just use a couple other analogies to think about what this means. Maybe in, um, maybe growing up, you were not good at sports, but you still had to be in PE. And everybody lines up to get picked on the dodgeball team or the kickball team. I was horrible at kickball. I was good at dodgeball, but horrible at kickball. And they start to pick. I mean, that's such a cruel system <laughs> that schools do, right? I don't know if they do that anymore, but they did when I was doing them. They probably don't do it anymore. Everybody just, whatever. Anyways, um... I won't have any social commentary for now, but they, they, uh, let's say you were that person. Did you have that experience in school? I don't know. But what this is saying is that Jesus made you his own. He picked you on his team, not because you were the star. It's kind of like Jesus looked at the team and went, that's the worst one. I'll take him. You're mine. Not because of who you are, not because of your efforts, not because of your worth, not because of your value, but because of my worth and my value. I choose you. Or maybe think about this. In business, a lot of times, um, depending on the type of business that you might be in or associate with or have experienced, there is a um, kind of a gaming to get a certain client. There might be several clients that are choosing between who they want to work with, and you might be putting in your bids or that kind of thing, whatever, however it works for, for um, something that you might be familiar with. And there's this edging to get ahead, to impress the client, so you get chosen, so you get that contract. This is Jesus saying, yeah, your portfolio is horrible. 
but I'm making you mine. See, those feelings that we've had, if we were picked for a sports team, if we won that contract, I had a friend recently that won this, they only need one or two contracts a year to have their business float. And I was with him when he got the call. We got it. It's this huge feeling. We were chosen. I mean, this is what Paul is saying. Christ Jesus made me his own. It's a profound thing. See, if we, a lot of times uh, we try to think, well, God chose me and made me his own because of how awesome I am. It's because of how special I am and how worthy I am that God would make me his own. No, it's the opposite. And unless we see that, we don't see how amazing it is that God would make us his own. Unless we see, I was the scrawny kid that got picked. I was the bad portfolio person that got picked. I was the dirty, rotten child that got picked and made his own. Then our hearts sang with how Paul's did. So Paul says he made him his own because of the cross, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did. This then creates different motivations. See, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That creates the pressing. See, motivations are really important because even within Christian um, growth, we can think about, okay, I will press on. I'll try really hard. I will grow. I will work hard. I will read my Bible. I will pray. I will go to church. I will give. I will serve. I will, I will go all out for Jesus. But if our motivations are so that I get accepted, so that he feels good about me, then it's going to burn out. Paul says, no, I press on to make it my own because he's already made me his own. Something happened already definitively in the past. And then he says this, this phrase down here. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Now let's just jump down here. And he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true to what we've attained. Here's what he's saying. Again, you've already got it. Now hold true to it. This is, if you think of, um, sometimes kids will write their parents a card and say, you're the best mom in the world. You're the best dad in the world. Now it's probably not true, maybe. But that can inspire a parent. Say, here's who you are. Oh, hold true to that my wife were to write me a note and say you are the best husband ever I know it well that would probably make me really want to live like the best husband ever that day hopefully for longer but at least that day I'd probably feel really inspired to be the best husband ever right or if you think about it in other terms if somebody gets elected to become the president now that they are the president they hold true to that it's you need to act presidential. Paul is saying, again, same thing up here, it's already been made your own, so press and make it your own. You've already attained it, now hold true to the fact that you've attained it. What has he attained? He's a son. He's he's been adopted. So now live like a son. Hold true to that. You're saved. Okay, now live experiencing salvation. You've been reconciled to God. Okay, now Hold true to that fact and live 
as an ambassador of reconciliation. You've been brought into God's family. Okay, great. Now live. Hold true to the fact that you're a part of God's family. You, you see how this is the logic of Christianity. This is how it always flows, is that God does something definitive and then says, now be true to who you are. This is who I've made you. Now hold true to that. Live in accordance with that. It's not work for something. It's work from something. Do you see the difference between that? That's huge. And that's the starting point of any semblance of Christian growth that we would talk about if it's actually going to be faithful to who God is and what he's done. It begins with what Jesus did. We work from the past. We work from the past because of what Jesus did. That gives us the power. But secondly, Paul's going to tell us now what we do in the present. So this is what Jesus did in the past, and we work from that in the present, how we actually go about this. Now remember, Paul said, I'm not perfect, right? That was his starting line. I am not perfect, which is something everybody says. It's a very common line. Nobody's perfect. But how is that line usually used? It's usually used as an excuse for what you do wrong. Hey, nobody's perfect, so I'm going to keep doing what I want. Hey, nobody's perfect, so let me off the hook. Hey, nobody's perfect, so every, you know we're all human, something that's another way to say it. Nobody's perfect, and we're all human, and nobody's a perfect human. So, hey, I've got two going for me. I'm human and imperfect. Paul says something very different. He says nobody's perfect, but he doesn't use that as an excuse. Instead, he uses that as direction. He says, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect, and so I'm going to press on. I don't perfectly delight in Christ. I don't perfectly enjoy Christ and find my value and my worth in Him. I don't perfectly do that, and so I'm going to press on to go there, to work towards that. It's a very different mentality, and so this is what Paul is going to give us. He's going to tell us four different things that help us in the present to hold true to what we've attained. Here's the first. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, and he's going to give us four things, so he's a true preacher. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So what does that mean? Forgetting what lies behind. Well, I think this means both the positive and the negative things. See, he's going to talk about and use um, language about the goal and the prize and elsewhere in his letters. He talks about running the race. He's going to kind of transition into these athletic competition race metaphors. And I want you to think about the four things we talk about in, in terms of that. Forgetting what lies behind. If you're running a race, you don't run. I've never run, ran a race, but you don't run like this, right? If you are runners, you don't run like that. That would cause you not to get far. When you're running, you look ahead. And Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. This is the positive and the negative thing. See, for some people in their life, what keeps them from growing, what keeps them from experiencing a deeper love of Christ is their past sins. They look back and go, how could God ever love me when I've done this? How could God ever 
feel good about me when I've done this. They look back in the past at their negative record. And remember Paul? He was hunting down and killing the church, he told us early in the, earlier in the letter. He was a persecutor of the church. So if anybody, he, he would be able to say, man, my past is checkered. Christian killer. But Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. But it's also the positive things, because Paul just last week gave us his resume. All these great, awesome things about himself. And sometimes it's those positive things that we look back at that actually keep us from our growth. Because we look back and go, well, look what I've done. And look, so I don't really, you know, we, we rely back here on what's happened to say, well, I'm okay because of these things that have happened. I'm good. I, maybe I can take a break now from growing because look at what I've done. I've kind of paid my dues to God back there. I gave a lot. I did this big thing back here, so I'm good now. The past sins and the past righteousness can keep us from growing. Both. See, we should always look back, but look back at what Jesus did, not look back at what we've done, whether positive or negative. This is not the same, by the way, as saying, hey, let the past be the past, let's just go. It's not the same as hiding things. See, sometimes people want to hide what they've done. They don't want to confess. They don't want people to really know them. They want to hide what they've done. And there's this kind of mentality of, hey, let's just let the past be the past and go forward. But really, you're still living in the past because that has control over you in the present. That's not truly forgetting what lies behind. That's actually what lies behind controlling Oh, I don't want people to know me. I don't, what if people knew about this? What if people found out about this? It's still actually controlling you. Forgetting is being able to say, that doesn't define me. That's not who I am, whether positive or negative. So first thing Paul tells us is forgetting what lies behind. The second thing he says is this, and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So again, this is a race. This is a marathon that Paul's envisioning here. And he uses these words all throughout. I press on to make it my own. I press. I strain. I press towards the goal. These, these active, I'm going towards it. If you think about, again, a race, these... If you're in a race, you don't look behind. You look ahead towards the goal. Say, I'm straining towards the goal. And remember, the goal is not just be a better person. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying, not that I've already obtained this, and this is this relationship with Christ, an enjoyment, a relationship with Jesus, knowing Him, experiencing His power in every part of your life, experiencing joy from Christ, in Christ. I press on towards the goal for the prize. Straining towards this prize. See, sometimes when we talk about growth, as Christians, it's this negative thing. Ah, growth. But Paul is saying it's, it's, it's a prize. We all strain towards things. We all do. Every single one of us. If it's a prize. If we look at it and go, that's... 
got value. We strain towards things. And Paul is saying, what's your prize? Paul is saying, what's your prize? Are you running towards the prize of knowing Christ deeper, of experiencing joy in Him? And he's saying it's a good thing to know and enjoy God as a prize. It's a goal. It's a good thing. So how do we do this? I mean, what does it mean to strain forward towards that? Well, just like any athletic competition or race or anything like that, there's at least four things that you have to do to strain forward. You have to know where it is that you need to grow. That's kind of the starting point. How do I strain for? Paul says, you know, I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. I haven't made it my own yet. Well, you kind of got to have an accurate starting point assessment of where am I? See, if you're a Christian, you should always be able to answer the question of where am I? Where am I in growth? Where is it that I need to grow? That's if you're a runner or in any, if you're an Olympian trying out, I mean, you, you, that's the starting point. Where, where do I need to shore up my time? Where do I need to lose some weight? Where do I need to add some weight? Whatever it is, you've got to know, where am I? Do you know where you are? Do you know where it is that God is urging you on to grow? And secondly, you need to know what it is that's hindering your growth. In Hebrews, Paul, um, or the writer, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but the, the author of Hebrews says something very similar. He talks about running the race, having our eyes fixed on Jesus, and he says that we throw off everything that hinders and sin that entangles, which is really interesting because he says we get rid of things that hinder our growth. Some of them aren't sin, and we get rid of sin. So what's hindering your growth? What's hindering you experiencing deeper relationship, deeper fellowship, deeper communion with Christ? What's hindering that growth? What is hindering it? Sometimes we, we try to grow and run the race, strain forward, like Paul says. Sometimes we try to do that while holding on to these weights. Try to run carrying big boxes or big bricks. Sometimes you might be able to get a little bit far doing that, just as in real life. But eventually you start to go, man, why am I not growing? Why am I stuck? Why am I? But you're still holding on to these things. You're still holding on to things that are hindering you. You're still holding on to things that are sin. And then going, wow, you know, I, I feel like I'm reaching a, a dead end point in my growth. But you're still clutching on to things that you don't want to get rid of. What is that for you? What's hindering your growth, whether it's sin or other things? Third thing that we need in order to strain forward to what lies ahead, we need to know where we are. We need to know what hinders us. We need to know what helps us. If you're running a race, you got to know, okay, I need some Gatorade or I need some power bars or whatever racing people do. I don't know. But I know that you need things and I know that there's things that will help you, the right tennis shoes, the right spandex, whatever, you need things. I hope there's a reason people wear spandex. You need things to help you, right? What will help you strain forward? I think there's some basic things like Bible and praying and community and sermons and all of that stuff. But what, I mean, what else for you? 
as just a person. I, I don't know what it is. Different people, different things. But, but what will help you grow to enjoy God more? What will help you to experience deeper the reality that He's made you His own? What will help you? What hinders you? Where are you? What will help you? And then finally, we've got to assess. It's kind of the restart back to where are we? If you're running a race, you continually assess your times and you assess. I had to do a lot of research to understand racing, okay? You have to assess your times and you've got to see, okay, how did I make that turn around the track? And you, you assess, where am I? And I think in any sort of growth, in any sort of competition and athletic uh, things that Paul is talking about, it includes those four components of straining forward. And here's the truth. Many people don't do this. I mean, if you look at your life, does it look like that? Are you straining forward towards the prize of deeper joy in Christ? That's just not true for many people. Many people do it for a little bit and then give up, throw in the towel. Sometimes things are great and then, oh my gosh, this got hard. Yeah. The same with the race. The first mile is pretty easy. Mile 20 is pretty hard. And this is marathon that's till you die it's a long race and it can be hard and so a lot of times people give up a lot of times i think a big reason for that again is that people are working not from the past but they're working for something they're working that god would accept them that god would love them that they'd be okay that they'd have good standing that they'd be righteous that they'd be a good person they're working for that instead of working from, again, the reality of what Jesus has already done. Religious activity can just burn us out and make us tired if we think we're fighting for our identity, instead of that Jesus has already done something. People give up. I think um, a really important point, too, on this is you should always, this is just kind of a side note that I just uh, feel led to talk about for a minute, is if you're looking to date somebody, and some of you are married or dating or engaged. Um, but if you're looking to date somebody, and this has applications for all sorts of things, probably has applications for hiring and, and that kind of thing as well. But if you're looking to date somebody, look for this, like look for Paul, look for this person. Look for the person that's growing. I wouldn't even say look for somebody that's arrived, that thinks they've arrived. Look for someone that's growing. Look at not even just their track record of what they've done. That's important. I mean, you don't want to say, well, they just got out of jail, but they're growing, you know. <laughs> I mean, look for someone that has a good trajectory, though, that you look at them and see they are growing. Now, again, there's some baseline, okay? <laughs> it's really easy to say, they're growing because they, <laughs> they just learned to tie their shoes. I mean, there's some baseline, but look for trajectory. Look for, is this a growing person? Are they moving forward? Do they know some of those things we talked about? Do they know where they need to grow? Are they getting rid of things that are hindering growth and adding things forward? Do they know and are they growing? What's their prize? What is their prize? What's their goal? Look for some of those things if you're dating. Just a small sub point. Okay? So, Paul tells us, to forget what lies behind, to strain forward to what lies ahead. And then third thing, 
what we are to do in the present. Can you move that forward for me? Uh, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So remember, this whole context, Paul's talking about growth. He says, I'm not perfect yet. I haven't arrived yet, but I'm pressing on to make it my own. Okay, and this is what you should do. Forget what lies behind. Strain forward to what's ahead. And brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And here's the thing. We need community. We, we cannot grow on our own. And some people get really frustrated by that. Because they think, I should be able to do this by myself. Even sometimes ashamed of, man, I feel like unless I've got other people in my life spurring me on and helping me, that I just fail. Yeah! And that's what Paul says. He says we need others around us. Examples and people that are living this out and people that are making Jesus their own because he made them his own. We need those other people to see what that looks like. But sometimes we get discouraged and go, man, I can't believe I can't do this on my own. Or sometimes we're proud and think, I can do it on my own. Me and Jesus, we got it. Me and the Bible, me and my prayers, I got it. I can do it. Paul says, no, you're going to be stunted. This is all throughout the Bible. This is a one line, you know, two line section of it. But the overall thrust of the Bible is that we are designed for community. We cannot do it on our own. Paul says we need examples. We need people to look at that are, this is not just, just some general thing. It's join in imitating me and keep your eyes that are walking according to the example you have in us as regards to pressing on towards Jesus, towards a deeper love, a deeper enjoyment of Christ. This is a constant thing. Keep your eyes on those. Keep them there. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to this way. And here's the truth. We always do this again. This is true with whatever your prize is, okay? Whatever your prize is, you will forget what lies behind for that prize. Whatever your prize is, you will strain forward towards that prize. And whatever your prize is, you will imitate. Who do you look at in your life and go, man, I want what they had. I want to get that. Is it because of how deeply they enjoy Christ? Whatever your prize is, you will imitate. You will keep your eyes and figure out how they do things and what they do and be interested in them based on what your prize is. So how, how do we do this? Let me give you just a couple suggestions on how we keep our eyes to walk according to the example. Um, I think one way that we do that is we can do this with both dead people and alive people. So I love to read biographies of Christians that have lived like this. If you have not uh, taken up that habit, I would strongly encourage that. Um, look, just your year, and can you read maybe a biography a year to stir your soul towards what does it look like to imitate those who have found deep joy in Christ? Maybe it's just reading and listening to other sermons with people that have this in their bones. 
It can be, you know, just a basic level. It's being in relationship, being in community with people like this. I think a lot of it is asking questions of people. Asking people, man, I see that there's a deep love of Jesus in you. How? What are you doing? What's happening? Or man, I see that you have grown so much and I feel like I'm not growing. What, what are you doing? Asking questions. So I think those are some, some ways. So Paul is going to give us these four things, forgetting, straining, imitating. And then here's the final thing he gives to us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That but, that's uh, the because, the for many, says walk according to our example. For many, don't do that. Paul is saying, look, there's a lot of people that are bad examples. Don't look at them. Don't imitate them. There's many that I've often told you about this. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's a lot of people that are bad examples. Now, what's he saying here? This is really interesting. Enemies of the cross of Christ. What is it? If you were just to think about that phrase, what are you going to think of? Demons and Satan and people that are persecuting the church and terrorists and, I mean, just enemies of the cross of Christ. That's not what he says. Paul says he's crying. He says there's tears in his eyes because of these enemies of the cross of Christ. And who are these enemies? Who is it that is bringing Paul to tears? Their God is their belly. They glory in the shame, their shame, with minds set on earthly things. This is stunning to me that that's how he would define enemies of the cross of Christ these three things here their God is their belly now what's that mean some weird kind of phrasing well, he's not talking about some giant belly that people worship he's not saying that they worship their belly button what's he talking about well it's got broader application but let's start physically why he uses that metaphor, why that makes sense. Let's start there. See, let's say somebody just loves eating. They just love it. Their belly, literally, again, we're just going straight physical, their belly is their God, and they feed it, and they sacrifice for it, and they tithe to it, and they celebrate it, and they're church services, restaurants, and they're feeding their belly. This belly is my God. I sing songs to my belly, and I love rubbing my belly, and it's great. I think Paul intends some humor around this. Get in my belly is what he's talking about, okay? Some of you are thinking that, okay? <laughs> um, and then what happens? If this person's absolutely committed to their belly being their God, it's going to start to show, right? Oh, I see that person's God. There it is. Or let's flip it. 
the reverse, or the converse, I guess, if someone's belly is their God, could be they want everyone to see it. They wear midriffs, or they show their six-packs, because their God is their belly. It's where they have their worth and their value, and they want people to see this God. They want people to see how great and chiseled and structured this God is, and how it, hey, I'm the kind of person that can wear these kind of clothes, because this belly is God. Sounds like a great cover for a fitness magazine, how to make your belly God, right? So that's kind of the physical thing, but so broadly, what does he mean? He means it's our passions and our appetites for just what we want, our pleasures and our comforts and our satisfactions. That's God to these people. It's just feeling good. It's comfort and love of life and just, oh, it just feels good. Their God is just whatever feels good to them. Their God is their passions and appetites. That's God to them truly. That's the prize to them truly. There is no belly temple. He's talking about this, that my passions and what feels good to me and just what tastes good to me in life that's become God. And they glory in their shame. You ever notice how people brag and boast about things that no matter what you believe about Jesus, you would say are weird things to boast and brag about in a normal state of mind? How much liquor you can hold? How many people you've slept with? How lazy you are? People brag about that. (laughs) I didn't do anything all day at work. I glory in my shame. It's very interesting. People, people have their God as their belly and they want other people to glory in their belly. To go, that's such a great belly. People want that. They not only want to have this that they worship, they want other people to worship it too. To draw other people into seeing it. Wow. What, what are you boasting? What do you boast in? And here's here's the kicker. All of this is summarized with saying, with their minds set on earthly things. The false prize. This is the pinnacle of enemies of the cross of Christ. It's this false, it's mind set on earth. Does that sound so bad? that my mind is set on the things of this earth? Does that sound horrible? That sounds something that you would categorize under enemies of the cross of Christ? Paul says that the gods, the belly, they glory in their shame, and just, I mean, all of that together is that their mind is set on earthly things. See, many people, many people have Christianity as this moral foundation for life. This tells me what to do, And what not to do, within this system, I will be a good person. But, set that aside, what's really in your heart? What's really your prize? Where's your mind really set? This is your moral foundation. 
But where's your mind really set? Where's your heart really set? What's your pride? Earthly things. That's just the thing. I mean, that, the translation of that is just what it says. I mean, it's just the things in this earth. Good things. Good things. Jobs, family, careers, houses, food, pleasure, fun. Things that aren't in the sin box, but their heart, their mind is set on earthly things. To back up, he says this, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. There will be a lot of damned good people. There will be a lot of damned people that had their foundation of morality as Christianity. But the end will be destruction because they never knew Jesus. Jesus was never their prize. They had never been made his own. Their minds are set on earthly things. The end of that is destruction. I think that that means eternal, but it can also mean even for those of us that are Christians, just kind of dead end, wasting what God has given Paul says, I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears. And let me just tell you, this week, this is so heavy on my heart for our church. If anything brings me to tears, it's this for our church. I feel those tears that Paul is saying. you have your mind set on earthly things, does that feel like an enemy of the cross of Christ? Or does it kind of just feel like life? Paul says he's crying that people have their minds set on earthly things. Man, that, that weighs so heavy on my heart for our church. I would hate it if we have a church of great, good people that's minds are set on earthly things. You know why this is an enemy of the cross of Christ? Because it's saying that that's not valuable. That that's not the prize. That that's not enough. That that's not where worth is. That that's not where joy is. That that's not where life is truly to be found. In the Psalms, David says to God, in your, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's an enemy of the cross of Christ because we say, no, that's not it. This is pleasure. This is joy. This is my prize. What's your, what, what, this is between you and God. I don't know. What is your prize? What's your prize? Not your answer that you would tell me in a classroom setting. What's the answer that your life shows? What's the answer deep down in your heart when you strip all the, the lies and the dishonesty and the deception away? What's your prize? Is it Jesus? If it is, praise God. Thank you. Be an example. Or is it earthly things? This brings tears to my eyes with Paul because it's so easy. So easy to be a good person with your mindset on earthly things. What are you straining towards? What are you strain towards? What are you forgetting is behind you so you can strain towards something? 
Who are you imitating? What do you boast in? What's your mind set on? Is it, I want to enjoy Jesus more? And look, Paul said, I'm not 100% there. But is this the direction that you're moving in? Is this where you're striving to grow in? If this is where you are, I would, I'll, I would ask you to do this. If you hear all this and you go, you know what? No, my mind is set on earthly things. That's my prize. Then you start with confession to God and tell him that. You just tell him, maybe with tears in your eyes, I've been an enemy. I have said the cross does not have value or worth. I've said that's not enough. Start there with confession and repentance and confession to people in community with you. And maybe even asking yourself, do I belong to him? Or am I just a good person? See, Paul says he presses on towards this because something definitive happened in the past. And I can't, um, I know as a preacher, I, I can't make you prize God. I can't, I can show you the truth, but I can't make you prize God. And if in your heart that doesn't exist, this desire for, I want to know him more then you should probably just start back at the beginning and go, am I his? Do I belong to him? Finally, the future. So he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we grow from the past, looking at what Jesus did. In the present, looking at how it is what we actually did. For the future, looking at what he will do. One day, Jesus is going to return. And that's going to be a sweet thing. If Jesus has been your prize, he's been your joy, and you've been, man, delighting in him and growing in delight in him, one day you'll see him face to face. I think we sang that in one of the songs. One day we'll see him face to face. We, thus we await him. And the Bible talks about that uh, the church is the bride of Christ. But right now, we're kind of just engaged to Christ. Because the wedding feast is going to happen one day when he comes back. So any couples that are engaged, there's, well, there's this hell of wedding planning, but then there's also this anticipation of <sighs> being married. And we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who one day will come He's already made us his own, but one day we will experience that in full. And I think this gives a lot of hope because you can look at your life, I can look at my life and go, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet. This says we await the Savior that will transform 
our body to be like his. That's physical. But also one day, if you belong to him, all the sin is gone, all the struggle gone, all the suffering gone. The Savior will come one day and make all things right with us and the world. And it says our citizenship is in heaven, which is to remind us. I think this is a, a helpful pointer and also a rebuke to those of us that have our hearts set on earthly things. Is to say, this isn't our home. This isn't our home. Don't make it your home. Don't make it your home. Gosh, we fight so hard to make this our home, to build heaven here on earth. And he says, our citizenship's in heaven. We're passing through. And it's a beautiful thing. For many of us, that's a beautiful reality to know, oh, man, life's not necessarily so awesome here. One day, my, so it's good I don't actually, I'm glad that my passport doesn't say earth. I'm, I'm glad about that. My citizenship's in heaven. And we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform. So when we take communion, I want you to think about all these things. If you need to confess to God, spend some time confessing to Him. If you need to delight and remember that, that Jesus gave us His life, that's what we remember with the body broken and the blood shed. We, we symbolize and remember what he did for us to make us his own. We remember that he made us his own. And so then we can live as if he is our own and press on to have that reality deeper and deeper and deeper. So that one day when he comes, we're eagerly awaiting at the same time, we'll receive tithes and offerings. And if you're not a Christian, don't give. We want you to receive. But if you're a Christian, we give as a response of worship to God. And we'll also sing. That's why we sing. I love that Seth said, hey, let's sing it like we mean it. Because we sing to say, yes, he's made me his own. And so I will pray for us. And uh, just one quick note, this is new, and there's going to be some loud clicking noises as they adjust the height so you can see the lyrics of the song. Uh, we are going to work on that, but don't think there's an earthquake and be disturbed when you hear the clicking. I don't know if earthquakes actually sound like clicking. If you think they do, it's not an earthquake to me. Let me pray. Lord, um, I thank you that for those of us that are Christians, you've made us your own. We belong to you. And maybe we haven't belonged to anybody or anything important in our life before. But we belong to you. You have made us your own. Thank you for that. Thank you that that is the foundational reality that we live from. Thank you that we can grow, that we can press on because to start with, you've made us your own. And God, I pray for everybody here tonight. I pray for defensiveness that is blocking hearts right now and says, whatever. God, I pray you would tear that down. Lord, let us not be enemies of the value and the worth that we see on the cross.
please, Lord, uh, speak to everybody here now. And break through hearts of stone and make hearts new for those that don't know you. And Lord, let us see you as the greatest treasure and the greatest prize and the greatest goal. And as we sing, let that truth even more so resonate in our hearts. And let us live out of that, straining to have every part of our life enjoy you, to get rid of everything that hinders so we may know you and enjoy you more fully. God, I ask 